Namaste and welcome to this um, second part in the uh, series Understanding Bhakti, which is the culmination of yoga. So in this second part, I wanted to talk about, and uh, just looking at my notes here, wanted to talk about salvation versus love. And it's like, well, what does that really have to do with bhakti? Well, part of the reason I want to speak upon the subject is because I think in understanding this, it helps us to really appreciate what bhakti actually is. Um, I think most people, at least in the Western world, but not just in the Western world, um, many parts of the world, their exposure to a personal God or the idea or concept of a personal God was via Christianity. Now, this exposure has also been common for some of the other, what are categorized as great religions of the world. We will see that there is also this characteristic that the central theme of many religions, of the world's religions, is salvation. Um, speaking about salvation then, I think is very helpful in developing a better appreciation of bhakti. So, if my exposure has primarily been that of, of the idea of salvation as being the central theme, then how do I look upon God or how does that shape my understanding of God or some highest truth? The effect that it has in many ways, it paints a picture of God as being potentially and somewhat unpleasant. Not all the time, but he has that side to him and perhaps being a little bit scary. If he is the person that holds in his hand my fate of whether I'm going to eternally enjoy or eternally suffer, then I have to be really um, careful in my relationship and my connection. It's almost like having an angry dad I think a lot of people have had these experiences, maybe not all the time, but at some points in their life where their dad has been on a bit of a bummer, things haven't been going right, or he may be an alcoholic or whatever. 
And the fear, my feeling is that, yeah, he's my dad and I, I really feel affection towards him. But <laughs> when he goes off, it's kind of like, <laughs> and that um, applying that sort of notion or that sort of idea or concept um, towards this personal feature of God in the Vedas known as Bhagavan um, is not good. You know, Bhagavan, as he is spoken of, and as we can understand him through the Vedas and the great transcendentalists, is something really, really different. I mean, really uniquely and and wonderfully different. But, you know, getting back to the the, um, topic of, of salvation, I, I would first like to say, please don't think that I am in any way criticizing or demeaning or lowering, you know, um, the value of salvation. We will see even within the Vedas, there is this foundational need for people within the material world to come to realize that this is not my eternal home. I will not find perfect happiness, complete shelter, the perfection of love within the material dimension. And of course, then with more of the Eastern traditions where there is the understanding and appreciation of of what is called reincarnation or transmigration of the soul. The idea that I can be perpetually reborn and stuck in the material world is kind of like something to be a little bit concerned about and often becomes then the motivation to seek some um, liberation from this condition, which in Sanskrit is referred to as moksha. So salvation is not really bad, and the desire for salvation, it's not that it is bad, but when it becomes my central focus or the central focus of my relationship with God or some higher truth, it makes it so I cannot have the highest transcendental experience. That is the the problem with it. So it has to do with um, the fact that salvationism is very me-focused, where I am the center of this formula. I am the center of this equation. You know, we use the term self-centered usually to mean only people that are kind of like really irritatingly egotistical and unbearable. (laughs) Oh, they're so self-centered. But actually a person can undertake kind expressions or neutral expressions and still be very self-centered. This is a spiritual problem. 
that keeps us away from the highest spiritual experience or attainment. So me being at the center of the equation of salvationism, it's kind of like I will look to God and say, God, please save me, save me. I am at the center of this and God, while he is infinitely more powerful and greater than me and I am dependent upon him to not be in this suffering condition, I am seeking that he do something for me, that he actually serves me. This notion or idea is completely outside of the experience of bhakti. It has nothing to do with. In fact, it detracts, it makes it so I cannot be fully immersed in the actual experience, the transcendental experience of bhakti. So on on one end of the spectrum or scale, you have self-centeredness. And of course, in its worst form, it is where a person becomes so incredibly evil and can commit all kinds of harm and injury to others because they are so caught up in what they want and their experience. I can rob a store and terrorize people. I can commit great violence against someone. I can rape someone, sexually molest. I can inflict tremendous violence because I'm so locked into me. I'm so overwhelmed by the self-centeredness. So this is one extreme. The other side of the spectrum is complete selflessness. Now, when I say selflessness, I am not talking about giving up or becoming or losing the idea of my individual existence that I am a self, but I have no what I would what is characterized as self-interest or my self-interest does not become greater than my God interest, if I can put it that way. Salvationism, you know, it's really about me and what I am getting out of my relationship, what I am going to get from God, what benefit I'm going to derive. And as I said again, this is not a bad, this is not wrong, this is actually wonderful. But I just again make the point that when we get into that consciousness, it separates us from something really truly wonderful. So when we talk about a relationship with God, and it not being selfish, it becomes about what is pleasing to him or his pleasure. This in itself is a big subject and we'll talk about it in in one of the um, talks that will be coming up. But this differentiation between salvation 
the doctrine of salvation and the doctrine of love is rarely discussed even amongst theologians it is not a point that is that is deeply actually appreciated i will just state that the understanding within the vedas is that when one has attained a position of complete selflessness and they are only focused on God's pleasure, on pleasing Him, and the mood of this focus is one of total immersion in love, that salvation is automatically guaranteed. Salvation meaning to get out of the material entanglement. It is also understood to be a byproduct of this love. So, and again, I will just reiterate that this desire for salvation is an actually, it is a barrier to the attainment of the highest love of God. So this is a very deep and profound spiritual truth. Now looking at it within the context of, of Christianity, uh, my experience has been that wherever I've been in the world, if I am speaking to a Christian audience and I ask what is the first and foremost teaching of Lord Jesus Christ, that about 50% or more of people who say they are Christians of some form will actually not be able to accurately answer that question. And I would just like to make this point. What we're speaking about is not a first and foremost teaching, although it is the first and foremost teaching. Lord Jesus Christ himself also um, accepted it as being a commandment that one who would follow him is commanded to follow this principle. So we see in, in Matthew, I mean, there are, there are a number of references in Luke also, but in Matthew twenty-two thirty-six, 36, we have a series of verses where someone asks Lord Jesus Christ, teacher, which commandment is the greatest in law? And Jesus declared, love the Lord your God with all your heart and with all your soul and with all your mind. This is the first and greatest commandment. And the second is like it, not the same, it is like it to love your neighbor as yourself, or to love your brother as yourself. So in my experience, has been that the loving of one's neighbor is often held to be the most important principle or teaching or tenant of Christianity. But in fact, it is not. It is a secondary one. The primary one has 
at its core, this principle of total and complete love of God. So the reality is the first commandment is the first one and the second one is the second. What's also a really important understanding and appreciation is that this commandment is not something that Jesus Christ brought to the world. Many people who say they are followers of Jesus Christ think that this was a teaching that originated with Jesus Christ. And the reality, it is not. The question that was put to him in Matthew is, Teacher, which commandment is the greatest in the law? That they are speaking of the spiritual law that originated in the Old Testament. And he's asking Jesus' opinion, what is the greatest of these? And Jesus, of course, repeats that. And we will see even one of the very early books of the Old Testament um, in Deuteronomy, in six, chapter 6, verse 5. And thou shalt love the Lord thy God with all thine heart, with all thy soul, with all thy might. So we see that this is actually an ancient teaching that predates Lord Jesus Christ's appearance within this world. And it is this love that has been spoken of here that is the essence of bhakti. What is this condition of love that is being spoken about? What is it? You know, the question is really, why is there so little known about it? If this is actually the essential message of the Bible, which covers the Old Testament and the Abrahamic religions that spring from it, and amongst the followers of, of Lord Jesus Christ. You know, we must ask this question, how is it experienced if one comes to this condition where it is not, oh, I love my wife, I love my children, I love my husband, I love my house, I love this country in which I live and I love God also and I love my pets. We're not talking about a divided love. The prescription was for a total and focused love with all your heart, with all your mind, with your entire being. So what is this? What is it? And how is it experienced by an individual? What are the symptoms of such a profound love? How is it manifest? Do you actually know anyone who has experienced this condition? And of course, the important question, how do I achieve this condition? So, 
the, I, I won't attempt to, of course, answer all those questions there. I'm simply raising them for you to, to consider and to think about. This is a very deep and wonderfully profound spiritual subject and should become the focus of all those who are seeking their highest good, who are seeking a truly transcendental or spiritual experience. Now, from a broader perspective, a Vedic perspective, Christ's proclamation is accepted by true transcendentalists as the greatest spiritual attainment. Was Jesus then a practitioner of yoga? And I will say yes. Does that make him a Hindu? No. We need to understand that what we are talking about is that which is truly transcendental. So there are those who, because of fear or some materialistic idea or out of envy, um, will criticize what they say is the mixing of Christ's teachings with, for instance, Vedic truth. And to such people, I can only say, I'm sorry that you feel this way. And while you are feeling this way, you will not be able to come to the platform of perfect love for God. It means that we are still steeped in materialistic ideas and notions. We have not accepted the transcendental nature of this truth. Some people will talk about, you know, your truth and my truth and want to argue about which is superior or better. Again, such type of argument is really missing the point, missing the point of their conversation. So the spiritual reality and perspective is there is one Supreme Lord. He is referred to as Bhagavan, which literally refers to the supreme an opulent personality of Godhead. There is only this one transcendental reality. But this transcendental reality may be appreciated by different people differently. There can be different points of view. I may see from a specific point of view, like I sometimes use the example of like a, a, a large like volcano, volcanic mountain. And there may be villages, you know, situated around the mountain. And there may be a festival or some great market that is held or something. And people from the villages all come. 
and they meet. And in meeting each other, they ask, where are you from? Oh, I'm from this particular village. And where is that located? Oh, my village is located by a mountain. And, and behind our village, there's this amazing, just sheer rock face that is just so dramatic. Yeah, another person goes, oh, I, we also live near a mountain. Um, my village is this one, but in, in uh, our mountain is covered with this enormous bamboo forest. It's just like majestic and spectacular. And a third person can say, yeah, I'm also from a village and by a mountain, but you should see the waterfall on our mountain. And they can think that they are talking about a different mountain. But what they are seeing is only their perspective, their understanding. And so it is also with spiritual truth that an individual may have a personal understanding, a personal perspective, and it may seem to vary from someone else's. The transcendental position, though, is to appreciate that the highest truth or God can be perceived or understood, appreciated and experienced in different ways. It does not mean that that truth is different. When a person comes to actually appreciate bhakti, then they will begin to appreciate that this bhakti, the the eternal nature, the eternal function of the soul itself, all souls, all spiritual beings, is to become immersed in this condition of spiritual love, that this bhakti, it actually transcends religious faith. Religious faith is a particular perspective. And what they speak about in the Vedas is true, and I'll use the term religion, meaning it is not religious faith. It is what is called in Sanskrit, Sanatan Dharma. This word Sanatan means eternal. And Dharma here refers to it can mean Dharma can be applied and understood in, in different ways, many ways, but here it is referencing the eternal nature, the eternal nature of the living being, the spirit soul. So the Sanatan Dharma, our Sanatan Dharma is to be engaged eternally in the loving service of God. This is Bhakti. So thank you very much for um, joining us today. And we will um, have a brief um, kirtan meditation. I will be chanting the Maha Mantra, or what is sometimes referred to as the Hari Krishna Mantra. And I invite you to join us. Hopefully um, it will show up on the bottom of the screen. 
and uh, make it so that you can join with us in this process where someone leads the kirtan or the meditation by first singing the mantra. Then people respond. Then again, the leader sings the mantra while others listen and meditate upon it. Then they join in singing joyfully and listening to and meditating upon, being absorbed in this transcendental sound. Thank you.
Krishna, Krishna Krishna, Hari Hare Rama, Hare 